Hello, this is Daniel Poppy, pastor at Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. This morning, we're going to be uh, in Matthew 5, continuing with the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll be in verses 13 through 16, the verses directly after the Beatitudes. Um, as we uh, look at the scripture, I'd invite us to prayer, pray this prayer of illumination. Lord, open our hearts and our minds by the power of the Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Amen. Matthew 5, beginning of verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your great deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I mean, there's a lot of sections in Scripture that are very familiar to us. John 3.16 maybe is at the top, you know, thanks to all those signs at sporting events and things like that. But I think the salt and light passage is one that is extremely familiar to us. It's very poetic language. It's very, uh, yeah, affirming, confirming language to us who... Uh, our followers of Christ who are following the way. It's encouraging. You know, but as we dive into this passage, I think, you know, it can be hard for us to really hear the depth and impact of what Jesus was saying to the first century hearers of these words. We've lived with these words for thousands of years, and our culture, our place in the world is completely different. Generally, our communities, our households, are good places. It seems that for the most part, the people around us generally have the same social sense of morality and responsibility that we carry. We generally want to treat one another as we would like to be treated, and so that kind of lends to a general sense in our society of, of rightness, of good, of peace, and of order. Like, obviously, there are moments and places and times in which that does not show through. But, you know, generally, we live in fairly good, healthy places. You know, we personally might even take it a step farther. We might uh, peacefully and purposefully engage in actions that maybe take this idea of being salt and being light, you know, to the next level. We might hold the door for a stranger as we enter a building, or we might stop for a car that's pulled over that, you know, maybe needs help changing a tire or something. We might even give some money to the poor as we see them in our communities, as we have opportunities to do that. 
By doing these things, we hope to generally influence our society and continue to raise it up, don't we? You know, when we take these extra steps in our faith as we try to live out our actions, we're actually living into something that, that theologians have named. It's called moral influence theory. You know what moral influence theory basically says is that Christians should show up, and when they do, they should be nice. And by doing so, we should inspire others to do the same. It sounds good. You know, so when we hear about salt and light from Jesus, we kind of say, oh, okay, I get it. I get what he's calling us to. Because the idea of showing up and being nice has been part of our Christian, for many of us, part of our Christian culture for most of our lives. You know, you may find yourself in a tense situation in the world and, and you resolve yourself to be the rational one, to try to diffuse the tension to try to be the peacekeeper in that situation. That's great. You know, maybe you're invited to hang out with a group of your old college friends, but you know that this group tends to allow their conversation to quickly go down a, a path of crassness or rudeness or per, perhaps gossip, you know, things like that. And so you agree to go, but you know, in doing so, you're committed. This time, I'm going to be the one to help steer the conversations down a healthy path. This time I want to try to help things go better. And, and this is great, you know. This is good because it resonates with our identity as being Christ followers and attempting to be good in the world. You know, as we do this, we are responding to the call of Jesus. We're responding to his words. We're trying to be the salt and light that he's calling us to on the Sermon on the Mount. Because, you know, we feel like uh, as we do this, the world will become a better place. We can wrap our minds around it, around these actions, around this way of engaging the world, because it all passes also for good social behavior. It's tangible. It's relatable. But, you know, this does us a bit of a disservice because I think it kind of diffuses the imagination, the greatness of what it was that Jesus was calling his people to on the hill. You know, instead of just another kind of moral niceness theory, I'd like us to consider a different idea this morning. I'd like us to consider a different way of viewing these words, a theory that scholars call the kingdom embodiment theory. That when we align ourselves with what Jesus has been showing us the last few weeks in the Beatitudes, when we allow these traits of pure-heartedness, of merciful, of peacekeepers, of those seeking righteousness, as we allow these to embody and permeate our souls, we allow the Holy Spirit to so enliven our motivations, our passions, our ideas, that we begin almost miraculously to embody the kingdom of heaven's ideals. We begin to function in a potent and provocative way in our world. And I think that's what Jesus is calling us too, when he was speaking to those gathered on the hill all those years ago. That's what God is still calling us to today. 
So rather than just hearing the salt and light passage as uh, encouraging words and like kind of morphing them into our own 21st century understanding of moralism and community responsibility engagement, let's take a deep look at what these first century hearers of Jesus were likely understanding him to say. N.T. Wright says of Jesus, some think of Jesus as a great Jewish teacher, but without much of a revolution. Others see him as such a revolutionary that he was actually leaving Judaism behind altogether and establishing something new. But the salt and light passage that we have in Matthew shows us that Jesus himself was holding those two opinions in tension. He was indeed offering something utterly revolutionary to those who were hearing him. And he would remain faithful to that call throughout his ministry. But it was, in fact, the reality towards which God had always been desiring the people of Israel to reach, to attain, to strive after. You know, what Jesus is teaching in the Beatitudes and what he is referencing here as salt and light was implying a core life change to the Jews who were hearing him. It's a, it was a total different experience and reality that, that, than that, that they were living. Of course, you know, the Jewish system of law observance and being a moral compass that guided the Jews throughout the world, you know, that worked for some, it was, but clearly God was wanting something more, a fuller way of living for his people. Most Jews were engaged in a cultural system and an identity that connected them with God. But in terms of how the Jewish people fit into the, the countries, the empires around them, it, you know, it didn't really impact the way they engaged their communities. They felt that God was enriching their personal devotion, but in true culture, if true cultural, political, or moral change was to come, then Israel needed to organize. It needed to elevate itself, its voice, and needed to start fighting for its rights the way all the other powerful nations around them had. This is what led the Israelites to seek after a king in the Old Testament. This is what was the hope of the coming Messiah in the time of Jesus. And what Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount was to help his followers, those who had gathered to listen, to think and to dream bigger. He was helping them understand how God's true manner of working through his people should look. So let's consider anew what salt and light might be referring to in this passage in Matthew. First, when Jesus is talking about salt, he's talking about radical allegiance to him in the way of the kingdom of heaven in the midst of a culture of religious compromise. When Jesus is talking about salt, he's talking about a radical allegiance to him in a way of, kingdom, in a way of living after the kingdom of heaven in the midst of a culture of religious compromise. Second, when Jesus is talking about light, he's talking about boundary-crossing mission to the Gentiles of the day that the Jewish leaders of the time were not interested in reaching. 
As a matter of fact, they considered the knowledge of God and his, his worship and following after him something to be guarded and not to go to the Gentiles. When Jesus is talking about light, he's talking about boundary-crossing mission to the Gentiles of the day that the Jewish leaders of the time were not interested in seeking after. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses the saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You know, in the first century, salt was extremely valuable. It was a commodity, commodity that was sought after and traded. As a matter of fact, many Roman soldiers of the time were paid their wage in salt rather than coin or whatever. So you've probably heard the saying that they're not worth their salt. That actually goes back to this time. It's referring to Roman soldiers who were ineffective or weak, and therefore they were not worth the extremely valuable wage that they were being paid in salt. You know, so for those gathering on the hillside and hearing Jesus say, you are the salt of the earth, they would, there would have been no mistaking that Jesus were referring to their value and their unlimited potency and potential and purpose in a dramatic way. They should be potent and provocative and impactful. Jesus was saying, those of you who hear my words, those who take upon, take upon you my yoke, my way of doing things, my way of saying things, and my leadership in your life, that I'm going to transfer my character and authority onto you. And as you go into the world, you will act and do the kind of things that you've seen me enact and do. The things that I would do and say if I were in your place. You know, this, this was an like an entirely new idea for the Jews that they could all participate in the work of God and that they could do so with power and authority. You know, typically this was just reserved for their religious leaders and their rabbis. Maybe we can identify with that a bit even today in our Christian culture. We kind of feel like it's up to the professional Christians to be doing the work and we just gather together and hear. Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth, and you will go out and live among these other religions, these other moral foundations, ways of living and doing things, and your difference will be so noticeable, so measurable, that all the powers and systems will pale and be bland in comparison to your life. He's saying this to his people that they should show up and that they should be so potent and, and impact in their, and have such impact in the surroundings that it would be as if God himself were enacting his kingdom through them. You know, at the time of Jesus, there were three kind of primary groups among the Jews. One was the zealots. They believed that the way the kingdom of God to come through was through force and violence. That the Jews should rise up and once again do military action against those oppressing them. 
The second group, the Sadducees, they thought the world would come through cooperation and compromise with the Roman political force around them. And the third group, the Pharisees, they believed that God's kingdom would be achieved through moral uh, soundness, essentially separation from the culture around them. So when Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. The first century hearers of this were hearing that these three main status quo ways of achieving the kingdom work, that they weren't working. And that they were never God's aim anyway, that there was a much more beautiful and full way in mind. You know, it's only when people take up take upon our, themselves the personality and the character, characteristics and fully engage the world as if the kingdom of God, these beatitudes we've been hearing, these ways of Jesus living and embodying themselves through, through us. And when the followers of Christ live in this way, it would, it would change things. It would challenge things. It would awaken things. It would begin to preserve things, all the things that salt does. All the reasons why salt was so radically valued. You know, once again, N.T. Wright says it like this, God had called Israel to be salt and light, but Israel was behaving like everyone else with its power politics, its factional squabbles, its militant revolutions. How could God keep the world from going bad? The main purpose of salt if Israel had lost its distinctive taste. Just as it was true in the day of Jesus, we too have all kinds of ways to enact our Christian faith in the world. We've seen many of our churches, our denominations grab onto these things. Fundamentalism, moralism, progressivism, patriotism, politicism, you know, each of them contain bits of the truth, but the reason the Beatitudes are so vital for us is they give us a holistic foundation upon which to live out our faith. They give us a more complete, effective way to be salt and light in our communities. Jesus says, I want you to be salt. Kingdom disciples in the midst of all kinds of religious and moral options that are out there. But I think he's also encouraging us not to worry about how big or small our opportunities may look. If you're faithfully representing me, the kingdom will be there in a potent way. You know, as I was studying for this message and as I was allowing these verses to hit me kind of in a new, deeper way, as I was reading what other theologians were saying, it was convicting. And those of you who know me, you know that this isn't necessarily my style. Um, I, I hope you hear my heart today. I'm not trying to say, look, church, we're not doing good enough. We need to do something different. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm trying to convey is the things that the Lord was convicting and putting on my heart this morning, or as I 
prepared for this morning throughout the week. We good? Can we go on to the light? This is good. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a lamp, light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, we love this light section of scripture because we like to imagine that we are on the right side of things, that we're on the good side of things, that, we're, that we are this light, and we are. That's what Jesus is saying, that you are the light of the world. And we love the light of Jesus in ourselves, and we love it in one another, and we affirm it in one another. We recognize the good deeds that, you know, we're doing, and our passage even says that, that others may see your good deeds and may glorify your Father in heaven. And then we tend to build communities around the light that we're experiencing, the light that we're seeing in one another. You know, we, uh, we gather ourselves together, we talk about the light, we, we enjoy the light together, but if we're not careful, we're doing exactly what Jesus warned us about, and we're bringing the light together and putting it under a bowl. We're putting it inside of this sanctuary, and we're not letting it go. You know, oftentimes we only feel uncomfortable uncovering our lights when we're around others who have a flame also burning in them. We fear what might happen if our light were to be shown in the wrong place at the wrong time. Worse yet, we may fear where our light is actually being called to go, where our light is really needed if we were to ask God, where do you need my light to go? Now, of course, being light in particular places, and for instance, as we're gathered here together today, this is beautiful. This is God's church. God is pleased with us gathering and being light. And God's provenient grace is constantly calling others and working other in the hearts of others and drawing them together to these, these communities of light. Many of you, that's your story of the way you found this particular community. God called you. He was stirring in you. And you, something in this place resonated with you. That's a beautiful thing. So I think it's important that we remind ourselves that you know, the, the, this place, our community, our culture, and hold that in comparison to what the first century culture that the Jewish hearers of Jesus' words were experiencing. The first century church was facing a much more stark and potentially dark reality. So being a city on a hill had a bit of a different ring to it. You know, of course, in that time, there was a pantheon of gods, paganisms, witchcraft, human sacrifice, prostitution, and that's all the stuff that was happening inside the church. You know, of course, outside the church, there were warring empires occupying and oppressing any that they could get their hands on. You know, in many ways, we today benefit from centuries of God's faithful ones bringing light into the darkness, to the ends of the earth, north, south, east, and west. Here we are on the other side of the globe, all these years later, still talking about the words Jesus shared on the hill. You 
Almost anywhere we go today, we can find others who follow the light. People of peace, God's kingdom. But does that mean the work of being light in our culture is done? Of course not. Clearly, there's still darkness, both in our world and in our hearts. Darkness of war and oppression, darkness of racial and social and gender inequality, darkness of alienation from those who don't share our exact set of beliefs and views, darkness in our hearts in the form of morality. You know, it's been said, there's been studies that throughout this last couple years, the pandemic lockdown, that sex trafficking, pornography, exploitation, alcoholism, substance abuse are all on all-time highs. Depression. So yes, the world has progressed since Jesus' time and what those gathered on the hill were hearing him say, but there's still much work to be, do, to be done, much work to do. And this is our opportunity today, both in communal and personal ways, we have a huge opportunity to be boundary-crossing light bearers that Jesus described. We're called to go to the darkest places in our communities around us. Some of us may be called to leave our community and go to other places in the world. And when we get there, we're called to be potent and provocative. At the time of Jesus, the Jewish people of God had turned their focus towards, you know, entirely inward. Their singular focus of the Jewish leaders and the church of the day was to get rid of the occupying Roman rule and to bring back the promised kingdom of God back to Jerusalem, to restore Jerusalem to its promise. Their vision at the time was for personal peace and prosperity. And that's why Jesus was such a total disappointment to the majority of the Jewish leaders. Rather than going to the political power centers and revealing his heavenly royalty, he went to the exact places that the majority of the Jews were themselves purposely not going. And he demonstrated love and healing and forgiveness there. You know, um, some of you may know that for five years, Melissa and I were missionaries in the Philippines. And that story, that, that calling to go there, I, I've shared in a few cases, but I'm not sure if I've shared it publicly. And for some of you, you don't know the story, but, you know, I happened to be uh, in the Philippines on a short mission trip about a year prior to our going. We were there uh, helping a local church who was expanding their ministry, and they were building a community outreach center where they would do tutoring, they would provide meals, they would do uh, just general ministry to the community in which they were located. And we were, we were building the foundation for this building. We were doing it the old-fashioned way. You know, we were making concrete, but we had a pile of rock and some bags of cement and water. We were mixing everything by hand. 
So I was on rock duty. I was shoveling rock into these buckets, and then we were taking these buckets over to a, a piece of plywood on the ground where you know, four or five guys with shovels were mixing up the concrete, then they'd put it in a wheelbarrow and take it off. And as I was you know, shoveling this rock in Manila, Philippines, it's hot, it's humid. The community in which we were located was actually, actually it, it, it was a, a, a place that they were recovering. It had been a landfill. And so it was a landfill that they had layers of dirt on uh, that they were then kind of developing this community. But essentially it was in the midst of a squatter area, a place where people just who could find a little bit of land could start putting together some pieces of tin and some wood and create a, a home for themselves. So it was a really desolate place. As I'm shoveling the rock from this pile, you know, I'm kind of getting into the heart of this rock pile. And I put my shovel in and I pull it out. And there, like underneath the, the shovel load that I just revealed, was dozens and dozens of little plants in the midst of a pile of rock sprouting. And immediately, the verse came to mind, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers. And immediately, I felt the invitation that God was simply saying, would you be willing to come here? Would you bring your family? There's a lot of work to do, and we could use your help. This remains the prayer of Jesus for us today. Who is willing to leave their peace and their prosperity? Willing to leave the known and the comfortable? Perhaps willing just to go outside of their daily routines and daily comfort zones in order to be salt and light where it's most needed? What are the places that most people don't want to go? Here in Fort Collins, in Windsor, in Loveland, in Greeley. Who are the people that most people feel too intimidated to work among? Here in Fort Collins, in Loveland, in Windsor, in Greeley. What the people of God do in the world really counts. A pot of soup, a warm meal in the church welcome center for hungry people, a warm place to stay at night, a missionary giving a shot of penicillin to someone who needs it, a team of Christian workers fighting hard to improve conditions in a refugee camp. a word of tender comfort spoken in the name of Christ. All of these deeds of mercy and others like them are the works of the church that flavor the world like salt and illuminate it like a candle in a dark space. That quote, again, was N.T. Wright. He's bringing it home for us today. We know that in a time of moral and spiritual compromise, every act of love and integrity makes a huge difference. It can be potent. 
living lives of resistance and a potency of light, it doesn't necessarily look, it doesn't have to look dramatic. It doesn't have to be thousands of people all at once. It really comes down to a cumulative set of decisions, a cumulative way of living and prioritizing our lives. Chasing after the love of Jesus and his power through the Holy Spirit so that we can then be salt and light in all of our daily situations. It doesn't necessarily look like, it doesn't have to look like packing your family up and moving around the world with a handful of suitcases. It might, but that's not the only way to be salt and light in the world. You know, you might have two moms at a park for a play date, and one is just barely holding on. She's crippled by fear and anxiety and exhaustion and doubt while her friend, the other mom, just is radiating this sense of peace and calm, encouragement. You know, meanwhile, this other mom, probably underneath the surface herself, is feeling a lot of the same anxieties and doubts herself, but she allows God to be peace and comfort for her friend in that moment. You know, news crews won't necessarily show up at that park play date and like publicize it out to the world, but the kingdom of God is there. The kingdom of God is touching one person as the Holy Spirit inspires you. Being willing to give a word of encouragement. We have good friends. These are lifelong friends the kind of friends that you'll know for the rest of your life. And um, their name is Tommy and Kristen. And when we were living together, not in the same house, but we were in the same community in Idaho, they really kind of heard this message at one point in a way that really caused them to decide, I think, I, I think we need to make a change. You know, the town we were in, Nampa, Idaho, is one of those towns that literally has a railroad track going through it and creating a north and south side of the town. And the south side of the town was the one that we're probably familiar with, the happy, healthy south. And literally, the other side of the tracks was true because the north side of town was not so good. It was a harder community. It was a much more impoverished community. It was more run down. The houses were falling apart. The people who lived there tended to be people who couldn't afford the nicer houses, so they were on the north side. And that affected their lifestyle. That affected their opportunities. Tommy and Kristen felt called to sell their house on the south side of the town and move to the north side of the town. And they bought this old, empty, abandoned white house, and they started re renovating it, repairing it. Um, they did most of the work themselves. They hired the, a couple contractors for some of the harder stuff, but they did the work themselves for the most part. So they were there day in and day out. And people from the community started stopping by and like being interested in what's happening and, and just kind of watching from afar. But, you know, over the weeks, 
as they're there. They had three little kids at the time running around, you know. So slowly they started approaching and asking, hey, what are you guys, what are you guys doing to this house? And of course, they expected them to say, well, you know, we're going to flip it. But they said, we're, we're moved to the neighborhood. I'm Tommy. I'm Kristen. Um, some people concerned for them said, you know that this, you know what this community is like, right? You, you don't want to be here. You don't want to move your kids here. But you know, they just assured them, hey, no, we're, we're happy to be here. This is great. We're looking forward to being a part of the community, getting to know you, getting to know one another. They restored this house, beautiful, and of course they, they painted it red. <laughs> it stood out. And then as they settled and as they began to just live in this community, of course, doing their lives, doing work, going to doing their jobs, taking their kids to school, but also just interacting with their neighbors and getting to know their neighbors. And in a place like this, the numerous opportunities, the numerous times in which a neighbor needed help was pretty frequent. You know, for us in our homes, in our communities, how frequently does a neighbor need help? We're pretty self-sufficient. But they felt called to go and to be help, and they would give help. At times, they were probably taken advantage of, but they still just committed to being there to help share food. Of course, you know, they had kids, and so their house became the place where all the neighborhood kids came because there were otter pops and corn dogs and, you know, things like that. So they were getting a meal. They got to then meet the parents of these kids and to start to find out their stories. In some cases, you know, it was a grandmother caring for their grandchildren and things were hard. And there were times when Tommy and Kristen could help care for the kids, look after them. In time, they were given the opportunity. The Lord opened the doors to share the goodness and the good news of Jesus. They had opportunity to pray with their neighbors, to come around them when a situation was tough, when healing was needed, to help their neighbors who were dealing with addictions, to help find them community resources to help with that. It was hard. but it was also the exact thing that God had called them to. And so it was easy. We don't all look like Tommy and Kristen. We don't all look like missionaries who pack up and move around the world. We might not all look like the two moms on the play date, but the call today is to be faithful responders to God's invitation to be salt and light. The call is to be present and to be nice when we're present, yeah, but to go a step further, to be bold and provocative in our community, willing to go across boundaries, willing to seek out the darkness around us in order to be salt and light in that situation. That means we, we must constantly be asking ourselves, 
how the characteristics and values and ways of the kingdom demonstrated through the life of Jesus can be made known more effectively in me. Many of us remember the WWJD bracelets. They're almost a joke these days, but the sentiment is exactly right. If Jesus were living through me in my situation right now, what would his instincts be? What would his words be? What would his actions be? That's our call. And the, to the degree that those questions, those motivations become the prevailing factor in our daily lives is the degree to which we are living up to this command to be salt and light. Let's pray. Lord God, um, we confess that, Lord, we are challenged this morning. And God, we're grateful for that challenge. We recognize that, Lord, you want good things for your people. You want us to experience comfort and peace and health and strength and prosperity. But God, you don't want it to end there. You call us to go farther. You call us to be boundary-crossing bearers of your light and to be salt, to be provocative, and to be bold when we arrive there. Not to the judgment, the chastising of those to which we go, but in the way Jesus was to be beauty, to be love, to be understanding, to be mercy, to be healing, to be help to those that you lead us. God, many of us are engaging in this work, and it is good work, and yet at times we feel tired, we feel exhausted. Lord, for those, we pray your strength, your filling, your endurance. God, some of us may be feeling like we're just not doing enough, that it's worth even asking the question, what's one thing I can do today? What's one thing I can do this week that pushes me a little outside of my comfort zone? Lord, to those we're grateful that the peace and the mercy and the power and the courage and the boldness of the Holy Spirit is freely available. Lord God, as we gather around your table this morning, we do so partaking of your body and your blood and, Lord, allowing the Holy Spirit to infill us and inflame us fresh today. As we do so, Lord, may we experience your encouragement, your grace, and your mercy as we endeavor to live as kingdom influencers, as we a desire, as we strive to embody the kingdom in our hearts and lives. Amen.